This morning we begin a new series of messages uh, from Paul's letter, first letter to Corinth, the letter of 1 Corinthians. We entitled it, Your Part in Building a Healthy Church in a Pagan World. Your Part in Building a Healthy Church in a Pagan World. Uh, Now, as many of you know, when you go through long letters, that means you're there a long time. And I will be trying to do larger sections of this text, uh, of this letter, than I normally do, where we kind of go paragraph by paragraph. I'm going to be taking a little bit bigger stretches of it, so I anticipate that we will probably get through the letter sometime by the end of 2023. Um, (laughs) uh, There's a reason why I'm picking... Uh, this letter for us to reflect upon over this next year or so. Uh, have you ever heard of a culture that is focused on, f- on sports, addicted to sex, and driven by money? Well, if that is at all familiar to you, then this letter will help us know how to build a healthy church in a pagan world. One of the professors at the seminary I attended wrote this about 1 Corinthians. If Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical Bible-believing churches of the, this time, I believe it would be much like 1 Corinthians. Their world was like our world. The same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness toward moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular, and their church was like our churches proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, doctrinally orthodox, which we may call into question now, but morally and practically conforming to the world. Paul is writing a letter to a place that is kind of a combination of Hollywood, Las Vegas, and New York City. This Greek city of Corinth had been destroyed at least partially by the Romans in 146 BC, and the rebuilding uh, as a Roman city was started by 44 BC. But it grew very quickly for reasons you'll see shortly. By Paul's day, there may have been as many as 200,000 people living there. For a long time, it had been famous for its immorality. In fact, to call someone a Corinthian in the first century was to say, you're a sexually immoral person. Uh, It has two harbors, as we'll see in just a moment, that were places where lots of commerce came through the city of Corinth. So there were lots of people that worked on the docks, lots of longshoremen, lots of businessmen, lots of activity. Every two years, there were important athletic games that took place in nearby Isthmia. And so there was lots of interest in sports and athletics. So what we've got is commerce and laborers and athletes and athletics, uh, worship centers for the gods, the Roman pantheon of gods. There were lots of gods worshipped at Corinth. The Roman upper class, there were Jewish refugees, 
there was a huge fascination with what were called entertaining orators. That is, people who would get up and just by the golden tongues of their mouth would orate about various subjects, and they would gather people around them, and there was lots of interest and fascination for that as entertainment. We might call it today stand-up comedians, but they were probably more than just comics. The emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and many of them ended up in Corinth. People like Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was a tent maker, and he joined up with Priscilla and Aquila at Corinth, and he spent 18 months there earning his living as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila on his second missionary journey. In his third missionary journey, he may have spent up to three months there. Uh, imagine a church that had such amazing teachers and Christians as Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, and Paul. They were all there at Corinth at the same time. Now, we'll get into this as we get through the letter, but 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul had written to the Corinthian church. The first one is lost to us, but it concerned sexual immorality that Paul had heard about in the Corinthian church. And then Paul receives an oral report from Corinth that, that things are getting even more troublesome. Party factions have arisen in the church, and there are divisions among the people. About the same time as this oral report is received, three guys arrive to Paul, who's writing from Ephesus. Three guys arrive from Corinth. Their names are Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. They come to Paul as messengers. They bring a letter from Corinth to Paul, asking for Paul's advice on a number of ticklish doctrinal issues and questions. The letter, if you've opened your Bible already to 1 Corinthians 1, I hope you have, the letter that you hold in your hands is Paul's letter of response to the lack of prompt response to the immorality that he addressed in his first letter. It's a response to the oral reports he has heard of divisions in the church, and it is a response to the questions that they had written him, asking him about. Alongside all of those, Paul also ends up addressing several concerns that are on his own heart. Well, you know that I have a map. So here's Corinth right here, and it is at this point of this isthmus here, which separates the main part of Greece from what's called the Peloponnese. And it's through this isthmus, if you go, if you can take shipping through here, you save yourself having to go all the way around between the Aegean and the Ionian seas. And so Corinth became a great place of commerce where shipping went from here across this isthmus into this side where new ships would take the shipping along and vice versa. Um, here's a close-up of that isthmus where you can see just how narrow it is there. Um, 
there's the main drag of the city of Corinth with the Acre Corinth in the background there. Up on that promontory were all the temples to all of the various Roman gods and lots of immorality associated with that worship of the pagan gods. On the other side of this um, big main street are all of the shops. Of course, they're in ruins now, but all of the shops where people sold their goods. In fact, we'll see a little bit more of a complete one in a second. This isthmus has actually, in the mid-1800s, they actually built a canal through it. This was not true in Paul's day, but it is now, so they can take shipping through there without having to unload and reload it. But in ancient times, and you can see here's a modern ship going through that canal, in ancient times there was a road built right at the spot where they would take and load all the shipping onto carts and carry it on this paved road across the isthmus to the other side and vice versa. Uh, The ruins of that road are still there. There's uh, all kinds of fascinating things at Corinth. One of the things that emerged from the excavations there was this, what's called a judgment seat or bema. This is probably where Paul stood before Gallia, Gallio, the proconsul in Acts chapter 18 after a disturbance had arisen as a result of Paul's preaching the gospel there. And he stood before this judgment seat for Gallio to say, uh, I don't see that there's a big deal here. Paul picks up on this theme in 2 Corinthians 5, right? When he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat, not of Gallio, the judgment seat, the Bema of Christ. Uh, here's a picture of what Corinth looked like in the first century. Uh, quite an elaborate place with lots of shops, lots of commerce, Lots of uh, athletics, lots of immorality, lots of the worship of pagan gods, lots of people, Roman, Gentile, uh, Jewish, a big conglomeration of culture and activity. And this I finish with is one of those little shops that's, pro- that's left more or less intact. It, they served as kind of strip malls, right? These little shops. And Paul and Aquila and Priscilla probably worked and sold their tents in a little shop like this, where you're walking down the street, you would see people and be able to do your trade. Why were they selling tents? Well, There were a huge number of Jewish refugees that were leaving Rome because Claudius had kicked the uh, the Jews out of Rome, and many of them settled here, and there was a housing shortage. (laughs) And so many people purchased tents as at least temporary dwellings for them to live in. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Please have a seat. This morning we are going to learn this key theme. Our identity is in Christ. That identity is all by grace and our unity as Christians is based upon this truth. Let's look first at our identity is in Christ. Paul's described called by the will of God. Now, this idea of call is important in these first few verses. It has to do with something done from outside of us unto us. Paul did not say, well, I wonder what I have to do in order to have the requisite requirements to be an apostle. No, it was God's calling upon his life, called by the will of God. Paul's called to be an apostle. The church is called by God, in verse 2, called to be saints together, along with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This idea of calling is something that attaches to our identity in Christ. The Corinthians, even the very word church, has the word call in it. It's an assembly, an assembly belonging to God, to those who are, verse 2, sanctified, made holy in Christ Jesus. That is, our identity is with Christ. We are not holy because of the things we do or don't do. We are holy because of our identity in Christ and His righteousness being imputed to us called, it says, to be saints. Now, there are some traditions where there's some qualifications in order to be saints. 
like you have to have done two independent miracles that are verifiable by more than one witness. And you go through a process that's called beatification, and then a college of cardinals votes on you, and you become a saint. No, not here in the Bible. Here in the Bible, the whole church is called to be saints. Why? Because we've all done two miracles? Because a college of cardinals has voted for us? No. We are called to be saints because that is what God has done in awakening us to the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul always directs us to our destiny, not just our beginning by faith. And our destiny is one of being like Jesus because we will see him just as he is. Now notice this phrase, together with all those who are identified with Christ everywhere. This tells us that this letter isn't just written to Corinth, but may we even suggest that it's written to us in some way, right? Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In every place, even here at East White Oak. And to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ means that we are not just saying, hey, Jesus. It means that we are calling upon the authority and the power of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. We're saying, help! (laughs) And we believe that Jesus is Lord, that is, that he is God, that he is Jesus, his personal name, that he is the Savior, the Deliverer. He delivers us from our sins, and that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah King. That's what it means to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Corinthians have a Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then asks that grace and peace be imparted to this precious church. Grace, unmerited favor, peace, everything in its proper order from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, our identity is in Christ. If we don't know who we are, if we don't know whose we are, then we will be cast adrift in the sea of culture. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that living life in Corinth is possible as a believer, not because we are so sharp and smart (laughs) or even so wise, It is because our identity is in Christ. Now, this identity in Christ is all because of grace. We don't earn our identity in Christ. We do not deserve our identity in Christ. It's all because of grace. Notice, Paul gives thanks, verse 4, always for the Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you. Really? That's hard to believe given what he's going to write here about the troubles that they've caused. You think, how can he say I give thanks to my God always for you? Grace is what makes it true. Grace from God to these troubled saints in Corinth and grace from Paul given by God to Paul to thank God for them. Notice 
I give thanks because of the grace of God. And notice, where, how does that grace come to the people of Corinth? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Not the grace of God that you deserved. Not the grace of God because you're a kind of a good person or good people or because you kind of were sharp enough to figure it out. No, no, no. I give thanks because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So that in every way you are enriched in Christ. Let's think about the ways in which we are enriched in Christ. The believer's life is always one of improvement, even when the circumstances get worse. Has this ever occurred to you that when you think about the times when you grew the most as a Christian, it was in times of stress and difficulty? I very rarely hear a testimony where someone says, you know, things were going great and they just kept getting better and that's how I got to know God. That's just a rare testimony. But the life of the believer is always one of growing in grace. It's always one of knowing how Jesus has improved our lives, even when the pain of life can, from time to time, get worse. We do experience things where we feel defeated. We can experience uh, emotional depression. We can experience physical pain. We can experience loss. And through it all, the life of the believer is one of growing in knowing Christ. Notice the ways in which it's changing for us. Verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him. In all speech, what we talk about has changed. In all knowledge, what we know has improved. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, the witness of Christ is being confirmed that this is really true. When we go through the hard things of life, man, it becomes so evident that this is true. Jesus really is my Savior. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. That is, the church does not lack any spiritual gift. More on that a little later. As you await, even in the midst of this life, you are awaiting the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be revealed to us in all his glory one day, and we're waiting for that. And in the meantime, he will sustain us, verse 8, to the end. He'll keep us until the very end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will stand before him on that day of Jesus Christ coming in glory, and we will be guiltless. Is that because we haven't ever sinned? No. It's because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our identity is in Christ, and it's all because of grace. Hallelujah. You will stand guiltless before his throne. Verse 9, all of this enriching 
is because of God's faithfulness, not our own. God is faithful. And he's the one who has called us, there's that word call again, who has called us into the koinonia, the fellowship of his son. He's called us to a life of identity, of intimacy with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice the way in which the title, the full title of Jesus, is given throughout these first few verses. Verse 2, all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You get the idea? It's all of Christ. (laughs) None of me. All of Christ. Our identity is in Christ, and our identity in Christ is all because of grace. And now we come to this last section of the verses we're looking at today, identity in Christ and the grace given us in Christ lead to a unity in Christ. Here he has an appeal, and when he says the word brothers, he means brothers and sisters. It's a generic term. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the appeal is for all of you to agree that there be no divisions among you. Um, One question that we might ask is, does this mean absolutely that there's no disagreement at all? that we all like exactly the same pie or that we like exactly the same foods or that we think exactly alike about all kinds of matters like what time to go to bed and what time to get up and whether or not to put cream or sugar in our coffee. How absolute is this? And it is defined here by what's said there at the end of verse 10 united in the same mind and the same judgment. It doesn't mean that we have a unanimity about everything to think about, but that there is a general view of the world and of God and our identity in Christ that is unified, that is without division. The reason Paul is calling on this is because he's received an oral report. A report, he says, is who is from Chloe's people. Now, we don't know exactly who this Chloe is, but the report is there is quarreling among you. I want you to notice the pain in Paul's words. Paul is probably writing this letter with a secretary. Uh, Some suggest he had an eye problem, so only at the end of his letters does he write, I write, I, Paul, write this in my own hand. He does the same at the end of 1 Corinthians, where most of the letter he's dictating to a secretary. And you can almost see Paul walking back and forth as he's dictating this letter, and he says, 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Notice how he might have slowed down. That there is quarreling among you. How heartbreaking it must have been for Paul to have heard that report. He goes on to further define it, verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, there's a party faction, every individual saying, I follow a key leader. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and even the super spiritual person says, well, I follow Christ. The idea isn't that there's something wrong with Paul or there's something wrong with Apollos or there's something wrong with Cephas or heaven forbid that there's something wrong with Christ. Paul is not saying that those people, there's something defective in them. Rather, there is something defective about the party spirit that says, rather than taking my identity in Christ based on the grace that God has given me and calling me to himself, I'm going to find my sustenance, my encouragement by attaching myself to a great personality. Now, there are, these are great personalities, right? They are gifted people. But Paul says, don't go do that. Don't chase after a personality. Don't divide yourselves by saying, I like his teaching and I don't really get that excited about his. I like his personality. I really don't like his. I like his set of gifts. I really don't like his. And to attach into groups of people that are following personalities, Paul says, we, that, we've lost our identity in Christ. Now, let me get personal here for a moment just to say how proud I am of you all in this regard in one very specific way. A little over a year ago, we had Pastor Jeff and Karen rejoin us as a church. And it has been one of the singular blessings of my Christian experience to just see how you all have received them well and have not developed a party spirit that is so precious. In large measure, it is due, of course, to Pastor Jeff and Karen's humility but it is a beautiful thing to see when the church of Christ sees its identity in Christ by grace rather than see its identity in the following after gifted, yes, personalities, but personalities nonetheless. And so I just want to say how blessed I am as your pastor in seeing how all of that is being worked out. Paul makes an appeal for unity in verse 13 by asking three questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The first question he says is, is Christ divided? Now I'm going to use a sports analogy here. And so forgive me, those of you that don't care about sports. But 
I like basketball, so I'm going to give this as an illustration. If, if the ball comes off the rim and two guys on the same team reach up and grab the ball at the same time and they start to pull on the ball, they can get called for a turnover traveling because they've got the ball at the same time. Um, and so what you do when you jump up and there's two guys that kind of from the same team, you, you yell out, same team, same team, to tell the guys to, you know, make sure only one of you has it or it will be a turnover. And what's happening here is people are dividing up by factions and what Paul is wanting to say is, same team, same team. We're on the same team. And as we head into an increasingly hostile world to Christianity, we need to be careful that we don't reserve our harshest criticisms for other believers. I think I see that happening. And I want to shout, same team, <laughs> same team. The integrity of Christ is at stake in our divisions. Christ's body is splintered. Christ is cut up and doled out in parts. That's what he means by this question, is Christ divided? No, of course he's not divided. If you're going to answer the question, who is Jesus? One of the first things that you say is he's not divided. Second question he asks in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? He's saying, you only have one hero. It's Christ. It's who he is and what he has done. The cross of Christ is out of focus when we become personality driven. To answer the question, how are we saved? It's by the cross of Christ not by the eloquence, yes, even of a person who proclaims the cross of Christ. Third question, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now the word baptized has to do with our identity, identifying with the name into which we are baptized. And Paul says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, you have only one identity. It is the ownership and lordship of Christ. And that's lost when we get into this personality division. And it answers the question, how do we follow Christ? We don't follow him by attaching ourselves to some personality or other. We follow our Lord. Paul says, when he asks these questions, he says, that's why I'm thankful that I didn't baptize very many of you guys. He says, I, I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Remember, he's dictating the letter. So it comes to his mind, oh yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know who I baptized because Jesus didn't call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. By the way, just as an aside, uh, there are people who believe that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And I would urge those who have that question to meditate on these verses because if baptism were a requirement to be saved, don't you think Paul would have given that an emphasis in his life as a missionary? Just think about that one. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you guys. That's not my job. My job in the body of Christ is to preach the gospel. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
And by the way, in this city of Corinth, where remember I told you they entertained one another by having these orators that spoke on all kinds of different subjects and everybody gathered around the orator to think about how well they were speaking and the eloquence of their words and all of that. And Paul says, I was called to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. The point is not that you would be impressed by me The point is not that you would be impressed by my presentation. The point is not that you would be impressed by how well I talk. The point is that you would be impressed by Christ and what he did at the cross to save you. And if I try to make myself look good even in the presentation of the gospel, that very eloquence is emptying the cross of its power to save. I've been called to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Preaching can empty the cross of its power when it shines the light upon itself rather than upon the cross. Now notice that Paul's, uh, as he's wrapping this section up, that there's several ways in which we can apply this text to our lives. First, uh, Christian unity cannot be built around gifted personalities, no matter how gifted they are, because different people inevitably have different heroes, and those differences will produce quarrels. As we come to the end, and I'm going to say this, as we come to the end of the Christian era in our own nation, it is going to be increasingly critical that our unity be around Christ and not around the cult of personality, no matter how gifted that personality is. I am fearful that as Christians argue with one another, the world will continue to enjoy that splintering and pick us off one by one until there are none of us left. Christian unity, built on the, our identity in Christ that's only by grace. Now, the other thing that I want to share with you is the key, the key that unlocks this letter is what I call the corporate nature of the writing. Now, what I mean by that isn't that it's talking about corporations. By corporate, I mean that he's talking to the church as a whole, not to individuals. Um, We often look at the Bible as a book of individual instruction, and we look at 1 Corinthians as a book of individual instruction. Now, it is that. Make no mistake, it is that. But we empty the Bible, and 1 Corinthians in particular, of its power when we fail to see just how much God wants us in community with other saints. And that life in community is what brings us to genuine maturity. I want to run through the text again, these 17 verses, and point out 
all of the corporate words rather than the individual words in this beginning to this great letter. Verse 2, to those, plural, sanctified, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the corporate nature there? Verse 3, grace to you, and the word you isn't you singular, grace to you all. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you all because of the grace of God that was given you all. Verse 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you all. It wasn't an individual confirmation. It was confirmed in the community of the body of Christ. Verse 7, so that you all are not lacking in any gift. When he's going he's to talk about spiritual gifts a little later in the letter. And it, he's not saying that every individual has every spiritual gift. He's saying that the body together is not lacking in any spiritual gift. You have the spiritual gifts that are necessary for the building up of the body of Christ. You all are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Verse 8, who will sustain you all to the end. All together you will be sustained to the end as guiltless. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you all were called into the fellowship of His Son. The church is called into the fellowship of His Son. Verse 10, I appeal to you all, brothers, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you all be united because I have heard that there is quarreling among you. Do you see how the key that unlocks this letter is the corporate nature of the writing? So that when Paul, in verse 12, identifies what the problem is, notice how the language changes. What I mean is that each one of you says. See the individualness there? Each one of you says. That's the problem. <laughs> You're not knowing your identity in Christ. Each one of you is saying this, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, etc. This corporate nature is how Paul can generally be so thankful for the Corinthians and yet so exasperated by some of the individual behaviors that he will address in this letter. You see, our identity must be together and it must be in Christ. That identity is totally because of grace. And that identity because of grace leads us together to an unbelievable unity that the world will look at and say, I just don't know why they get together. They think differently on all kinds of things, but they love each other. <laughs> the identity in Christ. It can't be found anywhere else, even in gifted, terrific teachers. I look forward to making our way through this letter as we see this remarkable way in which we can find our part in building a healthy church in a pagan world. Will you pray with me?
Lord, help us to know our identity in Christ, and if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ, they would identify with Christ by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I put my faith and hope in you alone to save me by what you did at the cross, Jesus, and I ask you to give me the eternal life you promise. Lord, I pray that all of us would recognize the corporate nature of the importance of our identity in Christ and that we would see just how valuable our pathways of discipleship are from our worshiping together to our adult Bible fellowships to our small groups that we would see that our identity is in Christ all by grace and that our unity is because of that identity. Now, Lord, I want to thank you for this precious body of Christ and the way in which I've seen practically that unity in the faith lived out. And we pray as the world grows worse and worse and as the light of Christian testimony appears to be growing dimmer and dimmer in our own culture, that we would shine as a bright light, a beacon to say to people, here is love Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sin. Lord, equip us by Your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.